In this episode of 2036 The Podcast, join host Munir Megjani, Emory's Vice Provost of Libraries and Museum Valida Dent, and Director of the Michael C. Carlos Museum, Henry Kim, as they discuss the role that cultural institutions play today as connectors and conveners, and how they can remain relevant in the century to come. Museums and libraries, they are part of communities. We look at our audiences, and we try to understand what communities are we actually creating our programs for. And I think there's a real change that's happening where we're no longer just looking at programs and products we create for those communities. Now it's the chance to actually engage with the communities, have them participate, have them give us ideas, but also have them as really the co-creators of products and programs that we actually put forward. And I think that as we go into these kinds of relationship building activities, one of the most important pieces is understanding that we probably have a lot more to learn than we have to teach. And it's a really important feature, I think, of our work moving forward for both the libraries and the museum. Hello and welcome to 2036, the podcast. My name is Munir Magjani and I will be your host today. Today we're joined by two phenomenal individuals who work literally right across from where we are recording. Uh, Valida Dent is the inaugural Vice Provost of Libraries and Museum at Emory University. She started in July 2022. Previously, Dent was Acting Provost and Vice President for Academic Affairs and Vice President for Student Success and Learning Innovation at Hunter College of the City University of New York. Dent holds a PhD in Information Sciences from Long Island University and an MSW and MILS from the University of Michigan and a BA in Film Studies from Hunter College. Henry S. Kim is an Associate Vice Provost and Director of Carlos Museum. Kim previously served as the Founding Director and CEO of the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, Canada. He has worked as a curator, a university lecturer, and a director of the University Engagement Project at the Ashmolean Museum at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Kim studied archaeology at Harvard and Oxford Universities, where he obtained a bachelor's and master's degree. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have such accomplished individuals being able to work at Emory with their students and with their faculty and staff. One of the things that I wanted to understand just right off the bat is how do approaches of the museums and libraries work into fostering greater connections with the communities? Well, I think one of the most important ways is that museums and libraries, they are part of communities. And I think especially when we look at museums, we look at our audiences and we try to understand what communities are we actually creating our programs for. And in the past, it used to be quite a diverse audience. Now it's even more so. And I think there's a real change that's happening where we're no longer just looking at programs and products we create for those communities. Now it's the chance to actually engage with communities, have them participate, have them give us ideas, but also have them as really the co-creators of products and programs that we actually put forward. And I think the same can be said for libraries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the participatory design piece is a framework that we will be working on collectively over the next many, many years to come, um, hopefully together. I think the other piece about the community work and the community building, community partnerships, um, is making sure that we engage with communities in ways that do not 
objectify them. So understanding that communities are living organisms, living groups of people who in and of themselves have a lot to offer. And I think that as we go into these kinds of relationship building activities, one of the most important pieces is understanding that we probably have a lot more to learn than we have to teach. And that's something that Henry has been, we've been talking about this since Henry's arrival, and it's a really important feature, I think, of our work moving forward for both the libraries and the museum. You talk about objectifying people. For someone who's listening to this and says, how can a library or museum objectify someone? What would you say to that? You know, I would probably say that when public-facing programming, services, exhibitions, exhibits are crafted without the deep engagement that Henry has talked about, that can very much feel like an objectification because it is, in, in a sense, you know, promoting the work without doing the deep work that helps us to understand historically why a community may actually have been silenced or disenfranchised. So we have to do that work first. We have to build that understanding. And then everything else follows, and it, and it becomes a much more organic and natural process. But everyone within the organization is really educated as to why communities sometimes end up feeling disconnected or disengaged. But to add to what Felita has said, I think what's also important is that no matter how expert we think we are, until you actually start asking questions to people who are part of these communities, you don't really understand the complexities of what it makes to be part of that community. And that's where I think one of the things that we have to do as experts is de-expertify ourselves. We have to come back down to the ground, and part of that is by actually not just talking, but listening. When we first met, he was talking, describing to me the tyranny of expertise, especially in spaces that rely heavily on disciplinary expertise and area expertise. And this is sort of reversing that, that we're, we're leaving that behind. Not that it's not important, but we're using that as a way to help us engage with the communities in a way that that doesn't preference that expertise. The expertise is no more important than the community's expertise in what they have to teach us. So to me, as someone who loves museums and libraries and tends to even check them out when I'm touring places, I feel that both of those places have the opportunity to lead the public as well. So just as much as we want their impact, I feel like this is a place that can also help guide the community as to things that they should be looking at and, and intervening in that way as well, right? How do both of you play into that role? Well, I think that anytime you engage in a community, you're trying to, first of all, get an understanding of what exactly makes that community tick. But you're also looking for how your own resources can actually play into that. And one of the things I find so exciting is when you can take something historic but link it up to what is contemporary practice. These are all great collections, but the object is to activate them. And the activation comes in not just from experts saying what things are, but it's also looking at how communities value these objects, but also looking at what communities value that are not in the museums. You're trying to create a holistic picture. We have one part of that whole. Now we actually have to work with communities to really get a better sense of the true whole. And if you can, to bring that to the wider public, 
That to me is very important because once you get that bigger picture out there, then people can really start understanding, what is this community all about? How do they interact with me? And how does this knowledge actually make me a better citizen? And I think the, you know, the engagement piece obviously is very important, but there is also the concept of relevance. I think a lot of it, is, it has to do with meaning making. So, you know, how do we as human beings, where do we make meaning and how do we make meaning? And so how do cultural institutions and institutions like libraries that provide services, you know, how do we become more relevant? How do we stay relevant? But then also recognizing that relevancy will change over the lifetime of the institution. So you don't just sort of attain relevancy and then that's it, that that work is really never done. So in that relevancy, we have a whole new terminology that didn't exist for a really long time, banned books, right? Things that are, for some reason, we don't want people to get their hands on, even in the land of the free where we're supposed to explore opposing viewpoints. There's a concept of banned books, which is just ridiculous to me. How do we deal with that? You know, there's so much here. There's looking at the nature of the content that tends to be targeted um, and how targeting that kind of information just serves to further exacerbate um, these, these gaps, the lack of inclusion, um, discrimination, white supremacy, um, that has really framed the, the, the foundations of this country, right? Um, I think as, aside from the content itself is how libraries respond and who responds. So, you know, in many cases, it is the communities that are most impacted um, that typically don't have a voice in the, the content being banned. That means that it is our responsibility. It is not only the responsibility, for instance, on a campus such as this, of libraries to speak up against banned books. And I know that that is not the case here. It is, it is the responsibility of our faculty, of our researchers, of our scholars, of our staff, of our students. Anywhere that we encounter these types of practices, um, I think that it is a collective responsibility to respond because where these practices can grow and thrive, other practices that are far more harmful and far more egregious will, will grow. So you also talk a lot about access. One of the things that has increased that access is the electronic forms that we can now receive all of this. But we also talk about the relevance of a library and the relevance of a museum. So how do you see physical libraries and museums not only persisting, but thriving, as you said, in this world of online and virtual society that we're in? There are so many different ways to answer this question. I think one that's most intriguing to me um, has to do with uh, the, the role that artificial and other emerging technologies might play so that we do what Henry was describing earlier, so that we bridge the gap between collections that are historic in nature, are antiquities, and connect them with emerging technology that may really um, inspire an entirely new generation of museum goers. 
Um, I was reading an article the other day about a museum that was using artificial intelligence to collect data on facial expressions as users were looking at paintings and sculptures and artifacts so that the, the feedback and the data to the museum's administ administrators really had to do with, okay, so this particular exhibit yielded very little in the way of emotional affect by folks who engaged with it. On the other hand, this one, there was a lot of resonance and a lot of emotion and a lot of affect as folks were looking at this painting or this sculpture. So do more of that. And that I think is, is brilliant in some ways. I mean, there are issues with it, but I think that there are so many creative ways that we can think about using emerging tech and innovation, even in small spaces, just to activate those audiences that maybe we would not reach otherwise. And I think that speaks to Henry's point earlier of kind of demystifying and not thinking that you're the expert, but really looking at what the audience says and then gently guiding them to where you need to be. Exactly. And I think that, you know, as you look at emerging technologies, the role of museums and libraries is that we're information providers. You know, that's one of our roles. We have other roles too, but that's one of the key things. And I think as people start, you know, discovering, searching, it's amazing if you can have a better integration of people's sort of interests with the sort of searches that come back to them. So if you're interested in, let's say, South Asian music and tabla and whatever else it might be, you know, based on what your searches are, based on what your activities may be, you may get something more focused that actually hits exactly to what you're looking for. And I think that is one level where, you know, the information trawling and data harvesting and analysis can be absolutely incredible. Absolutely. So bringing it home a little bit, um, Henry, as the director of the Carlos Museum, what is something that you're looking forward to bringing to the museum that hasn't been done or seen before? For me, the most important thing I'd like to bring to the museum is the connection between our collections, collections to contemporary culture. Now, it's been done, but I'd like to really start emphasizing this because that, to me, is going to be one of the ways that we explore re relevance immediately to new communities, to existing communities, and to specific ones as well. I want to be able to show, here's an object from the past, but what does it mean to you? Mm. Or how does it shape you know, the knowledge of this object, the visuals of this object, how might it shape your practice and your understanding of things into the future? One of the things I'd love to do is bring artists directly in contact with objects, have them learn, have them study, have them build up knowledge and then see how that changes the way that they view their own artistic works. That's one of the richest ways you can actually get the past and the present to work together. But I'm also ex interested in exploring this through music, through food, mm. through literature. You know, there's so much actually we can do with food because let's face it, most cultures, most communities thrive off of food and sharing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Valida, when you look back in a few years, and you look at you know, what we've accomplished at the libraries, at the Carlos Museum, at Emory, when we're doing the 2066 podcast, right? What is it going to be that you would like to see at that time? So when I think about you know, the conversation that we just had, it sounds like we've been figuring out how best that the libraries and the museum can really add to the quality of life 
for our community members in whichever way we describe communities. So these could be internal communities, they could be uh, communities external to, to Emory, they could be global communities. It would be wonderful if for the Emory University library system and the museum, you know, many years from now, we continue to be in a space where that is a part of what we're known for. So whether it's, um, you know, our practices around social justice, around advancing all types of equity and equality, um, the museum has a fantastic early childhood and K through 12 education program um, that I think is a model for programs all across America. Shout out to Elizabeth Horner, who's here. Um, I, I think that those kinds of practices and setting ourselves up as model builders in that area so we can continue to disseminate how we work and how we are thinking about growing practices in this area is something um, I think that would make me very happy. And I also think that it would do Emory proud. So, you know, I'm taking a point of privilege here to ask both of you. There's a word in Japanese that I think is pronounced tsundoku, which literally means buying reading materials and piling them up, which is a nice word of saying someone's a book hoarder that a they're hoarder. not going to read. <laughs> right. This is a problem that I've had, and this is a problem that a lot of my friends have, where we're addicted to buying books that we don't read because we have to scroll on social media for eight hours to fall asleep. As two individuals who are so closely involved with books and museums, what is a recommendation that you have for individuals to pick those up and actually change their habits? Well, don't stop buying books. <laughs> Never stop buying books. Even if you have to, you know, buy a second home, don't stop buying books. That's the first thing that I would say. Well, look, I mean, we have to support the authors too. Yes. So buying books is critical. Look, I don't believe that people should stop buying books either. Keep on buying. Buy more. The importance of having those books is not necessarily that you read them and that you've, you've read all of them. It's when you need them, mm. you can go to them. And that's, that's, that's the essential part of it. People who buy books are there, they're doing it for many reasons, but one of them is the potential that information can provide them. Same thing with libraries, same thing with museums. We have collections, and we may not actively use parts of it every single day, but having it there allows us to look back, to research, to, to, to create opportunities to use it into the future. And that's why I think the collecting instinct for uh, book collectors has to be there. I'm going to send that clip to my mom to justify that <laughs> library. Well, I really do appreciate both of y'all joining us today and for all the work that you're doing and so much of the work that I can only assume is behind the scenes. For those of you listening in, in a world filled with subject matter experts, I hope you will think about the tyranny of expertise and start to ask more questions to individuals and continue to refine that search and think about who the curators in your life are. Thank you again for joining us for 2036, the podcast. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast. You know, I've always been really interested in starting an organization that, or a nonprofit really, that impacted people of color, particularly black people, in chemistry. So me, along with a couple of other young women around the world, co-founded Black in Chem in 2020, and I'm now co-founder and vice president now. 
Black and Kim is a nonprofit that seeks to provide resources and opportunities for people of color, particularly Black chemists around the world at all levels. So at the high school level, we're really trying to get into our K through 12 demographic, but mostly we've impacted the collegiate level, the undergrad level, as well as the graduate and then post-grad levels. I definitely think being involved with Black and Chem has really inspired me to pursue entrepreneurship. I think I fell in love with the idea of what goes on behind the scenes with business, and I'm really good at it as well. And I really enjoy my role in Black and Chem, and I really would like to pursue a business endeavor, most likely after my PhD, and I'm really excited to learn more about that. Join Laney Graduate School Dean Kimberly Jacob Ariola and scientist Ayana Jones as they celebrate Black excellence in STEM. Listen on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036 Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.